Today's guest joined the New South Wales Police Force in 1980 as an 18-year-old and spent 24 years in the force, four years in uniform, 12 years as a detective and eight years as a police prosecutor. He was medically discharged with PTSD and has written two bestsellers, Seven Bones and Deadly Paths, about two homicides that he investigated during his time on the force. Episode 85, Peter Seymour. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. So welcome. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you. Now, I'm excited because you've got a very uh, varied history. You're an author. You've written two books, Deadly Paths and Seven Bones. They're based on your experience as a police officer when you're in the Homicide Squad. Homicide Squad, am I saying that right? You're a detective. But we, they were based on homicides, though. So were you in the Homicide Squad? No, I wasn't actually in the Homicide Squad. I was one of the um, divisional detectives, as we were called back then, uh, working out of one of the um, police stations out in the suburbs. So we were sort of like the, the jack of all trades. We'd investigate everything from your stealings and break and enters to um, your armed robberies, sexual assault matters, and up to homicides. Okay. So the books are based on that, but I want to sort of take you back in terms of your early sort of almost childhood in regards to why policing in the first place. What, what was your early childhood like that you sort of went, I want to become a copper? Um, it all started when I was a real little kid, uh, and I, um, was with my mother. I recall this vividly, uh, down in Parramatta and, um, we were standing at a, a set of lights and a police car pulled up right in front of us. And I just looked at the, the two police in uniform in the, in the police car and they happened to look across to us and one of them smiled at me and, uh, I thought from that moment on, I thought that's what I want to do. And then as I was growing up, um, I used to love watching uh, police shows, in particular uh, Homicide back in the day. Um, I'd watch it with uh, my father and uh, I just loved um, that show and the detectives and I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do and that's all I ever wanted to do from there on in. So what age were you when you joined the police academy? I was 18. Uh, I left school um, and I had to spend a year working uh, in a warehouse um, doing a job there until I was old enough to, to go in as a, um, as a trainee in the police force. So you waited till you were 19 or 18? So you left school at 17, worked for a year? That's right. Yeah, I went to school. Uh, I was only uh, four and a bit, four and a half when I went to school. Um, so I was a bit early, but... Um, so then, yeah, I had to wait. I was uh, the same, Peter, advanced for our age. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> um, well, that's what I'm going to admit to anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I none had of, to. None of this six years old now, buddy, cotton wool. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, now it could also be that mum was sick of me uh, annoying her at home. So she. I would say that we were just advanced off. enough to cope with school, Peter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, look, yeah, so I, I had to work for 12 months um, or, you know, bide my time for 12 months until I was uh, old enough to uh, get in. 
So when you started and you went to the academy, what is it? Nine is it? Was it nine months then? It's still nine months now, I think. So is it nine? Was it nine months? It's totally different uh, now. Um, back in 1980, uh, the academy was at Redfern in Sydney, and we did what was called an initial training course, uh, which went for a few weeks. Uh, we did all our studies, um, uh, got our uniforms. Um, we then go out to the police station for a period of time, then back in for what was called secondary training. Once we finished secondary training um, and passed all our exams, um, we were then attested as a uh, constable and then assigned to a police station. Do you reckon that's a better way of doing it rather than just going straight through the police academy? Because it sort of gives you a, a taste of real life police work and then you sort of come back and do the exams? Yeah, well, there were exams all the way through, like through the um, the initial uh, training and then the secondary training. So you had to pass both. Um, but um, look, I, I thought it was a great way of dealing uh, or doing it, I should say. Um, these days, I know you've got to go through university and it's a lot more geared around study. Uh, whereas You've got to go through uni to be a copper? Yeah, you do. A, you go through uni. Um, so Get out. A, I don't think they do that in Victoria. Yeah, no, in, in New South Wales, um, I think it's done through Charles Sturt, although I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, okay. But there is that university um, study component, and then they go down to the police academy at Goulburn. So it's a lot longer uh, training process or recruitment process than what I went through. Hmm. So how long is it now? Turn yourself I, place all up. Yeah, that I couldn't tell you to be honest. Um, I left the police force in two thousand and four, so it's been quite a while, and uh, hmm. I, I'm not quite sure what the recruitment process is um, these days. So, where was your first? Is it posting station? What are yeah. you? What's the what's the technical term? Oh, uh, look, either or. Uh, some people call it first posting. Um, it was uh, out of Blacktown. Um, I spent a few months uh, at Blacktown from January 1980 as what was called a junior trainee. So we were just in civilian clothes and uh, basically an apprentice, for want of a better word, where we worked in the station, uh, got to know um, everything that went on in the police station. And it was good grounding for when I went into initial training because I knew um, a lot about the jobs that come in, how they're dealt with, um, and I got a lot of um, information and support from the, the police at Blacktown, and I was fortunate enough to get uh, stationed or posted back to Blacktown um, when I uh, uh, finished all my training. So what was Blacktown like in the 80s? And I'm asking as someone from Victoria, so I've got no idea what Blacktown's like. Okay, well, Blacktown is out in the uh, western suburbs of Sydney. Um, yeah. It was real working class area um, and it was a very busy station. We, we got involved in everything, uh, which was good for, for people such as myself who just joined the police and got stationed there because you were thrown in the deep end uh, from the very beginning. Um, like 12 months into my service, um, I ended up as a, a senior person on a on a uh, crew on a on the old paddy wagon. So you learnt very quickly how to deal with um, a lot of situations. 
Well, you were in uniform for four years before you became yeah. a detective? Yeah, I joined in 1980 and um, I was in uniform for around three years before uh, I was able to go up and spend a bit of time in the detective's office and uh, start my uh, training process uh, with the detectives. And then uh, I did that up at Blacktown, spent um, a few months there, uh, got accepted um, into the detectives course. And then back in those days, you then did your training uh, at another police station. So generally from out in the Western suburbs, we'd end up in a city station somewhere and vice versa. Those who were from the city would get sent out um, further out um, our way. So I ended up getting transferred into Newtown um, Detectives Office and uh, that's where I completed my uh, uh, detectives training um, whilst I was there. When, like, what was the practical um, differences between being in uniform to being a detective? Okay, well, the uniform police, look, they're the, um, the bread and butter police. They're the first responders. They're always there. When anything happens, they're called in. Um, and then from there, depending on what the, what the job is, they'll call the detectives in. So uh, sometimes the detectives, we respond to things immediately too. It could be uh, armed holdup in progress or something and we'll respond. But um, the uniform police... Um, there you go to from the very beginning. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, a really difficult job. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, when I left the uh, uniform section and went up to the detectives, I always made sure I kept uh, a good relationship with all my old workmates in the, in the uniform section. Is being a detective easier... I suppose in terms of the emotional stress of the job because you then had prior warning to sort of brace yourself before you got onto a scene because if you're a first responder as a as a um a uniformed officer you wouldn't really know what you're walking into so that someone might call call triple zero for one thing and then you're walking into a completely different situation that was not really what was called in but as a detective if the uniforms are calling you in you sort of have an idea of what you're going into. Yeah, that is true to an extent. Uh, and with the uniform police, uh, I know I've been to many scenes where we've attended, especially domestic violence matters. Uh, mm -hmm. They're probably one of the most dangerous. Um, you walk in not knowing exactly what you're going to. You know there's a problem, but uh, I've had uh, good mates in the police who, who have actually been uh, killed going to domestic uh, situations. Um, because you're approaching the house or the premises and you can't see what's happening inside, but they can obviously see you coming um, from inside. It's, it's a very dangerous situation where, as a detective, if you're called to a homicide scene, for example, um, you normally you would have the uniform police there with the scene contained and then you walk in and, and take it from there. But there's also situations, as a detective, um, you could be called to... Uh, I went to one when I was at um, Marrickville Police Station. Um, a possible uh, uh, suspect uh, for an armed robbery uh, in the bank. Uh, he carried a, a towel uh, and one of the tellers had just come to that branch from the country posting 
and she saw the way this gentleman walked in carrying this towel and straight away she alerted the manager that she said, I'm, I'm certain he's carrying a gun. Um, to cut a long story short, they called the police station. There was only two of us in the detective's office at the time. We actually, it was quicker for us to run up to the bank. Um, so that's what we did. Yeah, because it was only just around the corner and up the main street. And when we came out of the police station, we looked down the road and the traffic was was terrible. It was chock-a-block. So we, we said, oh, we'll just run up. It's quicker. So I raced up and met the bank manager out the front. And sure enough, down the end of the counter, it was like a rectangular bank. So as you walk in on the right-hand side are all the officers and the tellers. Down the left-hand side was the counter looking out on through the window onto the side street. And there was this gentleman down right at the end um, writing on a piece of paper and he had this bright orange and yellow towel to his left on the counter and um, sunglasses on. And um, ended up my offside, I was married with a couple of kids uh, or had a partner and a couple of kids and I was single at the time. So I said, well, we don't have time to call someone. Um, we've got to go in. So I'll go in. And uh, if he sees me coming and grabs that towel, I said, I haven't got time to pull my gun out. I said, I'm in the deck and it's up to you. And um, anyway, uh, it was funny. Before I walked in, I turned and said to my partner, I said, you used to the pistol shoot recently, didn't you? And he said, yeah. I said, how'd you go? And he said, oh, I only just passed. Oh, oh God. My God. I, said, I said, right. I said, well, just don't shoot me, all right? But that was that was a scene that as detectives, we got called to straight away and we weren't quite sure what we were walking into ourselves. But um, I remember it being the longest walk of my life because uh, I knew there was a point where I thought if I get to this point, I'm close enough to, to lunge at him. And I fortunately got to that point and uh, knocked him into the wall. And we handcuffed. There was about six or seven people in the line. And um, when I unwrapped the towel, there was a double-barrel sawn-off shotgun, both barrels loaded. He had four cartridges, uh, shotgun cartridges in his pocket, uh, and he was ready to rob the bank. I, I think he's probably just waiting for the line to die down a little bit before he made his move. So they're situations that, as detectives, we do walk into. So was he at a teller window or was he just off the side to the teller waiting for everybody? No, he was off the side to the counter and all he was doing was right. just doodling on uh, one of the withdrawal forms. Um, right. Just, you know, pretending to be writing on it, but he was just, you know, drawing lines and things. And, um, yeah, yeah uh, I was just fortunate enough that he didn't spot me walking towards him and yeah. I was able to get close enough to, as I said, tackle him and um, we handcuffed him and, yeah, found the uh, double barrel saw and a shotgun there. How far into your career did you end up getting married? Uh, I got married in 1985. So, yeah, I'd been in the police for five years. How did your uh, wife react to you being in the police force and going into these dangerous situations? That When I, when I chat to guests that have dangerous jobs, that fascinates me because I don't think I'd be able to handle it if my husband was going out and facing life and death situations all the time? Well, look, um, Susie knew, you know, my job. Um, we obviously spoke about it and uh, uh, when we were going out and when we got engaged and so forth, um, you know, she knew the work I did uh, and she just accepted it. Uh, it was 
hard for her uh, at times because scenes such as murders and that, you're gone for a couple of days. So you, your wife doesn't see you that much at all um, because it's so full on. Um, called out in the middle of the night uh, to go to scene. So you'd hear the phone go at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning and straight away uh, you knew, uh, unless it was something that's happened in the family, you knew, well, that's working, I'm going. And she, unfortunately, um, oh, not long after we were married, a couple of years into our marriage, uh, she was a victim of um, a... Uh, a guy who uh, started ringing our family home. He, he'd actually delivered bushrock to us because I did a lot of landscaping at our first home and he had my number because he had need to ring me to organise deliveries and that. And he, um, I don't know, for whatever deranged reason, uh, started ringing Sue up and um, threatening to rape her and do all sorts of things. Oh. and. Again, uh, to cut a bit of a long story short, uh, we tracked him down through phone uh, taps and things. And um, But during this process of what was going on, um, Sue uh, had a miscarriage and uh, oh. was our first child and it really knocked her about. And um, so she's had to put up with quite a bit during my career in, in the police. I mean, that's a pretty heavy thing to have to deal with. Um, and for those that are under 35, this was house phones, no mobile phones. That's why it was that Sue was getting the phone calls. Um, would, geez, that's a really heavy thing to have to deal with. Was there any, like, was that the worst thing that she's had to sort of deal with or the multiple other instances as well? Well, that would have to be the worst because yeah. it directly was against her. Um, yeah. And it's funny, it's like saying the shoe's on the other foot uh, with 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 me because my wife was the victim and myself and the other detectives in the office were doing everything we could to find out who this person was. Um, and eventually we, we tracked him down or, got the evidence we needed and he was charged and he pleaded guilty to it. Um, but, Did you ever find out why? No, look, he, he gave excuses at the court hearing that Sue had, because uh, he had a brother um, with him uh, at the time and he gave uh, the excuse that Sue uh, basically, uh, if I can use this, put shit on his brother um, um at one time during one of the deliveries, but the absurd thing was um, when they delivered the bushrock to us from their truck, uh, I remember Sue saying it was a really, really hot day and she looked after them with drinks and all that sort of stuff. And it, look, it was just boiled down to the fact that I think he just took uh, a shine to her and mm. decided that he would start ringing her up and playing out whatever fantasies he had uh, over the phone, but saying, you know, unfortunately, for Sue, what he was going to do to her. Did he know that you were in the police force? Yes, because um, early on in the police, during the first delivery of Rock, I, I had him out a couple of times. There were a couple of times where he said, look, I've, I've got the lease, I've got the Rock, uh, can I deliver it at this time on this day? And I said, well, no, I can't, I'm working, I'm a shift worker. And um, I recall him asking, you know, what do you do? And I said, look, I'm 
I'm a police officer, so I'm working different shifts. So these are the times where, you know, I'll be home and you can deliver it. Um, Sue was uh, teaching, so she was uh, unavailable uh, during the day as well. So that's how that came about. Did that situation and having your wife as the victim in that scenario help you relate differently to future victims of cases that you were dealing with? Did it give you a different insight into their mentality? No, not really. Um, it it was more personal, obviously, for me, and I was mm. more affected, um, the stress of what was happening to my wife. Yeah. So I suppose what it does is it gives you a better understanding of what victims of crime, like sexual assaults and homicides, what they go through and what their extended family go through. Because yeah. when you're dealing with things such as um, homicides and that, it's not just the parents or the immediate family of the victim that are affected it's the you know their wider friends and 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 all that 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 are affected and and deeply affected and when you're investigating these matters you you've got that pressure on you to try and get answers for for these people for the family in particular they're looking at you to find out what happened to their son daughter or family member mother father brother whatever um and I don't, I've never liked the term closure. I know a lot of people use it, police included. I, I prefer to say that uh, our job is to find answers, find the answers that the family are looking for in, in murder cases. Oh, I don't believe they're ever closed because the, the victim's never forgotten by the family. The grief is always there forever. Uh, it's never closed. Uh, they may have the answers they were looking for, and that's, that's my view on that. Um, did it, did, I mean, the way that you describe it, it sounds very weighty in regards to having the expectations that you will um, provide answers to the families and friends in terms of some, some very serious situations that you're investigating. Did that take a toll? Like, was that mentally weighing on you? Like, I would find that very heavy to have to deal with the, that expectation of, um, answers and resolution and someone in prison and yada 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 yeah exactly uh, and the hardest part is where you get to a point perhaps in the investigation where you run out of leads you run out of information and you you tread a fine line between keeping the the victim's family uh optimistic that you know things are moving when in fact in the back of your head you're thinking god we're, we're running out of out of um, information where the, the trail's running cold and you you don't want to tell them that that's the case. You still want to try and keep their spirits up. Uh, so it is a very fine line and it does put a lot of stress uh, on you as a police officer doing that investigation. What is the line that you say, I'm going to be honest and tell them that now it's like a cult, like it's unrealistic to sell to solve it, I know obviously until it's solved, it stays as an open case and then it goes to cold cases. But at what point do you have that honest conversation with the with the families? If you've been treading that fine line between keeping them optimistic and then the reality you're thinking, I'm running out of leads here and options, yeah. when do you switch that and say, look, this is, oh, look, this uh, is looking like it's not going to be solved? 
Yeah, look, I, I, fortunately for me, um, the the two homicides I was uh, involved in as a senior officer, um, it didn't get to that point. But mm. uh, to me, I, I would think that uh, when you've, you've definitely exhausted all avenues of inquiry and there's nothing further that you can um, look into, you've got to sit down with a family and, and, as you say, have that honest conversation and say, look, this is where we're at. Uh, however, um, it's not going to go away. It'll always be investigated uh, when anything comes in and and you've got to ensure that you keep in touch with them uh, um, all the way through and continue on to keep in touch with them because um, you just never know when that day might come where you get the, the breakthrough that you need. When you moved to the prosecutor, like to be a prosecutor, were you still as a police officer? That, that's right. Yeah, I, I was. That was in 1992, and uh, I'd been moved from Mount Druitt Police Station um, out to uh, Penrith Police Station uh, to run uh, an investigators course. And it was a pilot course that um, the, the police force were um, wanted to, to trial, and Penrith got picked to. Um, to start it up and I got given the job of running that course. So I did that and that was for potential, what they call potential crime investigators. So people who wanted to come from uniform and um, uh, go into the uh, detectives uh, line of work. So I ran, I put that course together. I had guest speakers from different branches like uh, some of the squads, like the homicide squad, the um, sexual assault squad, uh, the prosecutor's unit, come out and give lectures and there were exams involved for them to pass. And after that, um, it just got to the point where my three daughters were growing up and I just wanted to spend more time at home and, you know, I suppose to me, wanted to support my wife a bit more uh, with the kids as they were growing up. So, and it was just one day I was in the detective's office here at Penrith and I saw an old workmate of mine who had gone from the detective's into the prosecuting branch. So I went and had a chat to him and he just said, look, it's Monday to Friday, you know, um, basically like a nine to five job. He said, you've got your weekends and your nights to yourself. So he said, if it's a family. situation as a copper, yeah. Exactly right. So I went and saw the commander at Penrith and told him what I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough that uh, he supported me. And yeah, in 1992, I joined the prosecuting branch. So what's, the, I mean, the reality is now you're standing up in court arguing the case for the Crown, why this person should be convicted and I, I'm assuming locked up in, in terms of a penalty. So given the situation with Sue, did that make her more nervous? No, no. Um, like there was uh, about six or so years had passed by then. Um, yeah. And as I said, we, we started having, you know, our own family and so things had settled down quite a bit. But I moved to the prosecutors, as I said, just simply to get away from working night shifts and things like that because yeah. after that incident for Sue, uh, if I worked a night shift for a week, she would pack up and she'd move and go up to uh, her parents' place at, uh, up on the Central Coast for the week. She, um, it affected her that much that she yeah. hated staying at home on her own. Um, yeah. And to this day, it still uh, doesn't sit real well with her if, um, uh, if she was ever at home 
alone uh, overnight. And I would imagine probably not wanting to be the one receiving any deliveries either from then on. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Oh, not so much that, but look, she, she, it did affect her, traumatise her a lot where uh, she just doesn't feel safe. Uh, yeah. on her own, especially of an, like on a night time. During the day, that's fine. Uh, but on a night time, um, yeah, it's, it, it has affected her quite a bit. So how did, it, uh, how did going into the prosecuting side of things impact how you viewed the legal system? Because prior to that, you'd be the one putting the cuffs on and investigating and trying to build the case and get the evidence so then the prosecutor can get the conviction. And now you're standing there trying to get the conviction, arguing the case. How did it, how did that a affect in terms of a reflective side of your policing career in terms of how you'd done things previously? And did it make it you jaded in terms of the legal system? <laughs> well, I'll answer the second one first, uh, if I can. The, uh, it didn't leave me jaded. It was sort of like a natural progression because uh, going from being a uniformed police officer where you're often in court giving evidence uh, on different matters to then a detective where you, again, you're often in court giving evidence sometimes, you know, for hours on end. Um, so to be a police prosecutor was, was in a way a natural progression for a detective. It, it worked well. You know, we had to study case law as a detective. We had to study case law as a uh, doing our prosecutor's training. Um, so it just meant that instead of me sitting in the witness box giving my evidence, I was the person that was uh, eliciting or getting that evidence um, uh, from I the witnesses. In the... I caught the slip up, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll just edit that one. Uh, but yeah. Oh, no, it, it... that's saying yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Uh, I meant to say eliciting the evidence from them. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it it, it was, a, as I say, a natural progression and, and it was an easy one for me to make um, because I, I, I knew the rules of evidence um, what you could say, that you couldn't give opinions and all that sort of stuff. So um, I found it a fairly easy transition um, going into the prosecutors. And then I was only in the, the general prosecuting section for two years uh, before I then moved um, over to the uh, coroner's court. And I spent the next six years from 1994 to 2000 um, as a sergeant assisting the uh, coroner at Westmead Coroner's Court. Okay, so explain to me what the coroner's court does or the coron like what do they do? Because I was, I was surprised having no understanding of what, what it is. I, you hear, oh, the coroner's investigating this death or the coroner this and the coroner that. But who the frick is the coroner? <laughs> okay, the coroner is a magistrate, okay, right. um, that has been appointed as a coroner um, to deal with, uh, deaths and uh, fires. So they're the two two things the coroner um, investigates. Now, the police obviously do the investigation on behalf of the coroner. And then if it deaths, if there's a hearing, it's called an inquest. If it's a fire that goes to hearing, it's called an inquiry. Um, so the uh, all suspicious deaths and all suspicious fires are reported to the coroner. And then it's up to the police to investigate those matters. And 
we'll keep it simple. In the event of a of a suspicious death, if no person is charged with that death, then it's up to the coroner to make um, the findings. The first, the name or identity of the deceased, um, the date and place of the deceased um, or where the death occurred, um, the um, cause of death, and then the manner of or circumstances of how the death occurred. Now, that's the role of the coroner. So uh, if no person was charged with, with a homicide, then it'll go to uh, inquest. And that's where all the evidence is heard. It's a different um, uh, hearing to what you find in the local courts. So rules of evidence such as people giving opinions and things like that, that's um, allowed in the coroner's court. Wow, okay. The difference is the um, local courts, the district courts, the Supreme Courts and that, they're adversarial in nature. It's the Crown against the defence. At the coroner's court, it's different. We're just trying to get to the truth of what happened. So it's not an adversarial type situation there. Um, so rules of evidence are a lot more relaxed in the coroner's court. Um, so people can come along and give uh, opinions on whether someone you know, may have been uh, or appeared intoxicated at the coroner's court. Um, you would generally get evidence from them to say, well, are you a drinker or have you seen people that have been affected by alcohol before? And as a precursor to getting that evidence through, where it's a lot tougher in the other jurisdictions to to be able to get that sort of evidence in, and it rarely does get in unless you're an expert. Are the magistrates sitting on other active cases on the bench, or are they separate in terms of they're not they're not presiding presiding is that the right word presiding yes um over the over other cases and that just a coroner doing that sort of work or do they do yeah, a mixture so of both in um in the main coroner's courts back back when i was a prosecutor there we had the state coroner's office was a glebe and then we had the second major coroner's office of westmead so they the there were i think from memory two coroners two or three at Glebe and the one at Westmead, who was a senior deputy state coroner. So that's all they did, um, the coroner's work. Out in the country areas, um, the magistrates out there, um, if there was a coroner's matter to be heard out there, they were able to do that. Um, they could change hats, so to speak, and deal with a coroner's matter out there. But if it was something that was uh, a very difficult matter or something that the state coroner decided, no, we want, I want to do this or have one of the senior deputy state coroners do it, then it was one of the coroners from the state office or Westmead that would then go out to the country areas and, and run the um, coronial hearing out there. Once they've done a ruling, the magistrates have, or the coroner have done a have ruled in terms of what they. If oh, I don't know how to word this properly, but if it's not as adversarial, so the the rules of evidence are more lax, so to yes. speak. You've mentioned yes. opinions allowed and so forth. Then, what is the outcome of them making a determination or ruling or whatever the 
like whatever they they say this is what happened yep what happens then okay sometimes you might be part way through an inquest into into a suspicious death and you get sufficient evidence that um you believe justifies someone being charged with that murder so what would happen is and i've reached that uh, point on a couple of occasions during an inquest um, where uh, I've um, indicated to the coroner that I uh, was seeking a short adjournment and then go out and speak to the police and say, look, um, we've now got all this evidence. Uh, I think there's enough there to charge whoever it was with the murder. Uh, and um, if the police, the detectives were happy with that, then uh, they would go and arrest the person at the court take them down to the local police station, which was Parramatta from there, uh, and charge them. So whilst all that was happening, the court, I would notify, I'd go down and notify the coroner, let the coroner know what was going on. And generally the coroner would know that, you know, that's what's happening. Um, and the coroner would reconvene the court. I would then um, get up and advise the coroner that, um, there was uh, someone has now been taken into custody, a known person, as we'd call it, has been taken into custody uh, and has been charged with an indictable offence in relation to this um, inquest. The coroner would uh, then say, well, I'm satisfied um, on that information and terminate the inquest and then make findings of that, uh, the, the name of the person satisfied that, uh, that person died on or about a particular day at this location. And that evidence would have already been uh, produced to the court because we'd have the post-mortem reports and, and all the reports from the police. Um, so all that would already be there. And then the coroner would say, I'm satisfied that a known person uh, has been charged with an indictable offence, could never nominate or name the person. It'd just be a known person and then the inquest would be terminated and then it's left to the other jurisdiction uh, to deal with the matter from there. So if you're still a police officer working in the coroner with the coroner's office, is that on the coroner's office, why aren't you, if you've created this evidence as if you were because if you were still in a detective role, you would have been investigating the case and then going and arresting the person. Why do you have a different role if you're investigating it? Are you then not going out and arresting as well? No, because um, so, as I said, it's a coroner's uh, jurisdiction, uh, right. but they direct the police. The police do it on behalf of the coroner. They do the investigation. Right. So they're out in the field. I'm actually based at the coroner's office because apart from doing inquests, uh, they're not being held every day and inquiries. They're not being held every day. Um, we're dealing with a lot of other matters. It could be a pool drowning um, that have got to be investigated. And when all the evidence is presented by the police, all the statements, photos from the scientific, it's all put together as a brief of evidence sent to the coroner's court it was my job as the um, sergeant assisting the coroner to review all that evidence. And if we were satisfied that there was no foul play, that it was um, either a suicide or an accidental death, we'd do a written recommendation on the paperwork to the coroner. 
the coroner would review everything. And if the coroner was also satisfied of that, the coroner would then make the five recommendations. So um, that, you know, the person's identity, date, place of death, the cause of death, which we um, get from the post-mortem report and the manner of cir or circumstances, which you'd get from the police brief of evidence. And then the coroner would then uh, dispense with an inquest uh, and um, that's where the matter um, and and do her findings that it was say an accidental death or a, a suicide if it was proven to be a suicide and then that death would then be um, lodged as that and no further so action once you, taken. Once you move into the coroner's uh, offices you're under the coroner's jurisdiction therefore you've got to direct the police in terms of what you would like them to do. That's correct, yes. Okay. Yes. So you, from the coroner's office, you retired? Is that, am I, have I got that right? No, I, I was actually uh, convinced to go back to the detectives um, in 2000. So uh, uh, an old workmate of mine um, contacted me one day and said, look, there's a, a, a position coming up out here at St Mary's. Um, again, another Western Suburbs um, um, police station. He said, would you be interested? And I thought, well, it's been eight years now that I left the detectives and I went home and spoke to, uh, to my wife and said, look, um, there's an opportunity presented itself. Um, and our kids were that much older now. And she said, look, you do what uh, you're happy to do um, and I'll support you. So um, I ended up uh, getting transferred back uh, to the, the detective's office at St Mary's. You ended up getting medically discharged from the police force. Talk to me about how that came about, because that was for PTS. You say the D yeah. on the end. I don't like saying the D sort. <laughs> oh, look, that's, that's all right. Um, Post-traumatic stress is, uh, I refer to it as something as like a thief in the night. It, mm -hmm sort of sneaks up on you and you don't realise until all of a sudden things start to come crashing down. Um, and, and that's how it happened with me. So, so it, what? It, that's no, a very brief explanation, Peter. <laughs> look, well, look, um, what happened for a period of time, especially when you're dealing with coroner's matters for six years, yeah. so every day looking at death and then dealing with family members that are going through tremendous grief. Um, and trying to explain the role of the coroner. Um, and it does take a toll. I, I remember one incident, it was a pool drowning, and it was a little girl. And I was reviewing the brief, and I got to the envelope, which had the photographs of the victim in the scene uh, that were taken by the police scientific officers. And when I opened the photos, it, this little girl was a dead ringer for my youngest daughter. It was oh, like no. I was looking at my youngest daughter um, next to the pool and then um, in the hospital with all the tubes and things. And that, um, yeah, that affected me quite a bit. And yeah. I remember our, um, our uh, welfare team had come out to Westmead Coroner's Court one day for a training um, uh, day uh, with coroner's liaison officers. And they said to me, what do you do as a as the prosecutor here assisting the coroner. And I said, well, I'll show you. And I showed him a brief uh, just like that. Uh, I said, we've got a 
review all this and make recommendations to the coroner. I said, sometimes we go out to scenes. I've been out to scenes of um, fatal plane accidents to industrial accidents where someone's got caught through a, a grinder and things like that. Oh, um, I've been to those scenes um, for the coroner. And they said to me back then, you cannot soap all this up for an extended period of time um, before it starts affecting you. So they said, look, you've been here a few years now. Have you considered retiring from the police force? Because it's not something you can, you know, you'd be expected to continue doing. And I just laughed it off and said, no, no way. But as the years went on, more and more I found myself having nightmares. Um, I'd get to the point where every morning, three o'clock, quarter three, quarter past three in that time frame, it's like a switch goes off in your head and you wake up. Um, sometimes I get back to sleep, sometimes I couldn't. But I would have the most horrendous nightmares where I'd find myself sitting up in bed. I'd have sweat pouring down me or I'd have tears running down where my kids had replaced victims in fatal accidents or been hit by a train because I've been to all those scenes. And um, a psychologist said to me at one time, the problem for police in particular is, as opposed to a member of the general public, is that our nightmares continue on because we see the aftermath of what happens. We're there, oh. you know, picking up the bodies and things like that where the general public don't see that. They might see a collision, but then that's where it stops for them. Oh. Whereas for us, it's the aftermath. And... Uh, yeah, so the nightmares became more and more frequent where you'd have a really bad one and for the next two or three nights I'd go to bed and I'd lay on my back and look at the ceiling and do whatever I could to not fall asleep because I just didn't want to have another one. Um, and you can only deal with that for so long. And then one day uh, I was driving to work. I was at Green Valley Command at the time and... Um, I stopped at a set of lights and I was to turn right to head down the street down to the police station and I just had a breakdown. I would have done or given anything to have just turned around, driven off into the sunset and been on my own. Um, but I went to work, but I knew then that I was in trouble and um. I needed to get some help. Um, the nightmares were becoming more and more frequent. Um, every night, as I said, I'd wake up. Um, and so I went and saw a, an old work colleague who left the police and became a psychologist. And I had his card actually because uh, a year or so earlier, um, I was in charge of an investigation into the disappearance of a little three-year-old girl who we then found um, drowned in the in a backyard pool. Um, mm. The water was was dark green; you couldn't see her body in the in the backyard pool. And, at the debrief, um, uh, the psychologist was there and he said to me, yeah, what the hell are you still doing in this job? He said, it's going to kill you. He said, here's my card, Pete. He said, come and see me. And I always kept that card and I thought, oh, no, look, I'll be right until this one day. And I thought, no, nah, uh, I need to go and speak to Mark. So I made an appointment and he said, yeah, look, come and see me for half an hour. So I went and saw him and that, half-hour appointment went for uh, nearly two and a half hours and at the end of it I was 
just to shut a mess. And he said to me, you're not going back to work. He said, I can't put you off myself. I can put you off at the moment on sick leave, but I can't do the paperwork to have you medically discharged. He said, that's got to be done by a specialist, a psychiatrist, and I'm going to send you to one. And so I went through that process and ex explained to the psychiatrist what was happening to me and how I was feeling and, and that. And um, he said I had symptoms of a Vietnam veteran, and I, which I said to him, I said, you're, you're crazy, aren't you? I said, what those poor buggers went through. Yeah. I don't believe I have anywhere near the, the problems that those poor uh, service people would have uh, been going through. And he said, look, it's to do with all the death. He said, you know, you take so much of it and dealing with the aftermath of it, he said, uh, and that's how it affects you. So your symptoms are classical of that. And um, he said, you're not going back to work. He said, do you want to live or do you want to die? Um. And so that was it. And I was off work for 12 months before I was finally medically discharged. And that was probably the darkest point in my life because there were times where I'd just walk around the, the home on my own during the day, uh, kids are at school, wife's at work, and I just break down and I I did have suicidal thoughts. Um, but when that happened, uh, I somehow found myself looking at pictures of my wife and my kids and myself and I'd always dust myself off and say to myself, you, you're a bloody idiot. You know, you, you've looked at people who have lost family members to suicide and you can see the anguish and the grief they're going through, you can't put your family through that. And that's what I recall always when those times happen, that was um, what I convinced myself of and it was my family that got me through in the end. Good on you for reaching out for help. So many um, don't. Yeah. Considering you're from more of an old school, uh, I mean, you started policing in the 80s, which is, I would say, more old school and yes. not so aware in terms of the impacts of mental health. What was the difference that made you reach out rather than just say, oh, I'm just going to retire and, you know, hit the bottle or something like that instead? Like, what was, was it, had they, had the police force done mandatory a mental health awareness that made it you to feel more acceptable in terms of reaching out for help what was it that sort of said yeah okay i'm gonna speak to mark was it mark mark yeah look um no back even back in 2004 there wasn't a lot done the, the police force started having these debriefs after critical incidents where the debrief when i joined was the the shift getting together after work and having a couple of beers before going home and chatting amongst ourselves and, you know, making sure we're all okay before we leave um, and went home if, you know, something particularly uh, nasty happened during the shift. Um, but they'd moved to having these debriefs where everyone got together and uh, must admit that debrief for that little girl. Um, we had all the emergency services people that had participated in the search and the parents were there and I don't think there was a, a dry eye in the room, to be honest, um, and that was particularly difficult. Um, so, it, it to me, it was. I just knew that 
I wasn't right. Like having the nightmares and waking mm. up, you know, you know, there's something wrong. It's it's not you. I, I'd come home sometimes and I'd walk in after a, a you know a hectic day and you know the, the kids come up, hey dad, you know, and want you to do it, and you just want to be left alone. And mm. I would sometimes find myself uh, saying, just leave me alone. <laughs> I need some time to myself. Go away. And then I'd feel bad about you know uh, having a shot at the kids. Uh, uh, because I thought, well, they just want my time. And in my head space, I just needed to be on my own. And yeah. it was my wife. But they're saying grumpy would... dad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I felt really bad. And I'd end up going and apologising to kids, saying, sorry, kids, you know, you know with the names. And I, I just need a bit of time to myself. And that's when my wife, she would just take over. She'd grab hmm. the kids, come on. And she would sort them all out for the, the rest of the night and, you know, play with them and she'd make sure dinner was, was ready. She, she was brilliant. Now, she, she knew when to leave me alone, when I needed my own space um, or when it was right to talk. Um, and did obviously, she have an inkling that something was really like, had she seen your moods and behaviour changed to the point where she was also having conversations with you saying, I think you need to see somebody? No, not not those conversations that I should see someone. She did see changes in me um, and it wasn't until after this whole thing sort of, you know, scenario fell apart that and we spoke about it where she, you know, would say, yeah, you just weren't yourself. Um, mm. But as I said, over the years, as I said, she knew... Uh, when I just needed my own space and um, uh, to talk. And look, to this very day, my family don't know really half of some of the things I've been to and, and dealt with uh, because it's not mm. something I want them to know to start with mm. uh, or that they need to know. Um, so they're things I've kept to myself. Um, and look, things have got better uh, as the years have gone on and I'm out of the police and not dealing with those things. Uh, the nightmares uh, aren't as anywhere near as frequent. They still happen. Um, uh, I had shoulder surgery a couple of months ago and they had to wake me up in recovery because my blood pressure was heading up towards 190 and um, the anaesthetist, they called him in and it was late at night and he said, wake him up. He woke me up. He said, you're right. And I said, oh, I was just having one of those things. And he said, I thought so. He said, so lucky we woke you up and stopped today. Um, <laughs> so I still have them, but mm. I'm better at dealing with them now. Um, and as I said, because it's not as frequent, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot better than what I was. I had I interviewed um, an ex-homicide detective, Narelle Fraser, and she does a lot in the PTS space at the moment. And she apparently... Uh, psychiatrist or a psychologist explained to her that <clears throat> so she actually had they a dissociated state that she was meant to be in court and they found her after she was due to be on the stand and she didn't know how she got there she was in the cafe didn't know how she got there and and so forth and the psychiatrist said I think it was the psychiatrist said um I'm probably going to butcher this if people can go back and listen to the episode that 
she'd basically blacked out for her brain to cope. And yeah. over time, it's like a vase or a, or a pot or something and a, that drips of water of what you've seen. And some people's vases are smaller and some people's vases are bigger. And at some point, if you see enough stuff, those drips of water start flowing over the over the edges. And um, I thought that was a really lovely analogy in regards to her situation and how PTSD sort of is that drip effect in regards to the constant exposure as well. Yeah, yeah and that's exactly right. That's, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, as I said earlier, it's like a thief in the night. It sort of sneaks up on you and before you know it, uh, it hits you. Um, and that's the same sort of thing. It, it just builds up over a period of time until you you brain just overloads it just can't take it anymore and you shut down uh in her case unfortunately she had this blackout period i Mm. don't recall ever having that um my thing was the the nightmares of a night and you just get fatigued because Mm. you don't want to sleep for a couple of nights after that because you don't want to have another one like it uh you you just get fatigued you're overtired and things compound uh and you just reach that breaking point where you your body just shuts down you can't take it anymore given the fact that you and we're going to speak very broadly in regards to this um for legalities but given the fact that you left the force for pts issues and it was that constant exposure situation what made you then want to deep dive into particular murder cases and write two books was i i that was never something i ever envisaged um yeah but uh it was the senior deputy state coroner at Westmead who presided over the first murder which is in the seven bones book that urged me to write the book about it he actually even said he'd help me do it because it was one of the most bizarre cases he'd ever presided over as a coroner or even as a magistrate in his earlier days Mm. and i i had a few attempts at it myself i'd get a few pages in and i'd think no, this is rubbish. You know, I, I'd write it like a police brief, you know, very factual. There was nothing really that I thought, oh, that's not going to capture the imagination of someone. It's, you know, it's a police brief of evidence, which is fairly raw and dry. Um, and I'd put it away. And then I'd find something would happen down the track, might be a few months later, that would bring me back to have another shot at it. And this happened three or four times. And I thought, that's it. No, this isn't for me. I can't do this. And then um, one day I met this lady, uh, Robin Coglin. She's an Indigenous artist and um, fashion designer. And my eldest daughter had won the Miss Teen Australia pageant. And Robin was the one chosen to design her national outfit. And she didn't live too far away, only about 20 minutes from where we were. And I had to go down and pick something up or drop something off to Robin um for it and i'd never met her before and she was speaking to me from a veranda and i picked up or dropped off whatever i had to do and she said there's a young woman that's contacting you right well what she want and i I was thinking of something to do with the pageant and uh, she said she's dead and i just looked at her and the conversation went sort of like 
she's contacting you and she needs you to do something. And she said something about the colour red. She said, but she um, was murdered and she's reaching out to you to do something. Does that make any sense? And I don't know why I thought of it, but I said, oh, well, look, I've been thinking of writing this book about this murder, blah, blah, blah. And she said, that's the young lady who's coming or reaching out to you, and she's not going to stop until you write this book. And I thought, oh, for God's sake. Um, why does something always bring you back to, <laughs> to writing this, this book? And then I drove home, and it really freaked me out. And it turned yeah. out Robin was um, a psychic medium. And I never believed in psychics or mediums and all that sort of stuff. But what freaked me out was that during that murder investigation, there was one night where the kids were in better sleep. I'd gone upstairs so I was tired and left my wife downstairs watching telly. And I'd just jumped into bed. And I I was leaning on my right shoulder and I was still pulling the sheet up. and as clear as you and me are talking here tonight, I heard my name called, a female voice called my name, Peter. And I don't know why, it's stupid. I turned my head to the side and I answered. I said, yeah. And there's no one there. And I looked around and it it um, startled me. And I got up, I checked all the kids' bedrooms. I was convinced there was someone there. I went downstairs and asked yeah. my wife if she'd just Oh, I've got me. all goosebumpy. <laughs> yeah, I said, did you, did you just... Call me. She said, No, what would I do that? She said, She'd gone to bed. She said, I actually turned the telly down so it wouldn't disturb you. Why? And I said, It's all good. Don't worry about it. And I went, And I, so I told Robin this. Uh, and she said, That's when she told me, Well, that's the woman who's contacting you. And I went, Right, okay. And I thought, On the way home, why the hell do I have to write this book? And I thought, Well, this was a domestic violence murder. And domestic violence was starting to ramp up around that time. And I thought, maybe that's why I have to do it. If I write about it and some people read about it and it helps, you know, women um, who are victims of domestic violence realise this is what they're going through and see themselves in a similar position to um, this particular victim, it might be enough to convince them to get out of that situation and give them that courage. So that was the um, motivation to go home and I spent the next three months just knocking out this um, story uh, a few hours every night on the computer. I didn't care how it read um, and ultimately I had to get it edited uh, by Jason Foster uh, who I was introduced to and uh, he did it and it got published. And since it's been published, I've actually had contact from um, a few women, uh, one from overseas actually Better as well. alive. Alive, uh, contacting okay. me saying, thanks for the book. Yeah, no, definitely alive. Um, it's helped um, make me decide to leave a violent marriage. Oh, that makes it worth it, doesn't it? Even if it's yeah. one person. Yeah. Yeah, I had Damn. one lady uh, contact me uh, from a refuge where she'd taken her son after reading the book and left, went to a refuge, and um, she sent a letter in 
through the publishers, um, saying she saw so many similarities um, to um, the victim in the book Seven Bones that uh, she didn't want to end up like her, and so she left. It's a remarkable read, and for those that want more, it's a, it's a bit of a twisty, turny, convoluted. There's a bit of a legal stuff that I sort of want to avoid. So everyone, please go and get the book, Seven Bones. It's, it's a fabulous read, and um, I don't think we're talking about it. We're doing it justice by any, by any sense. Your other one, Deadly Paths, talk to me about that one. Okay, that happened, uh, and it's funny, you... The old saying, uh, be careful what you wish for. When I left the coroner's court and and transferred back to the detective's office at St Mary's, uh, the very first shift I was out um, out the back having a coffee with uh, uh, my mate, uh, the detective sergeant, Mick Lyons, um, who we worked together in that first murder in Seven Bones. And um, I made the silly remark to Mick saying, look, I need a really good investigation to get me back in the swing of things. I've been out of it, you know, the investigative side for eight years, you know, maybe a, you know, a murder or something to, to, uh, you know, get me back into the swing of things. And, uh, lo and behold, three weeks later, I got called in, oh, I was around one, one thirty in the morning, um, to the murder scene in the book, Deadly Paths. And I wasn't even one of the on-call detectives that night, but, the duty officer who was on, who I'd known for many years as well. Um, he was the one that called me and he said, I don't know who was on call, I didn't care. He said, I wanted you in here. So uh, that's how I ended up dealing with that murder. It was a um, a gentleman who was quite intoxicated um, late at night, um, walking home from the uh, pub and um, he got to the intersection of his street and was about to turn right and he was only 250 metres from home and two young blokes coming the other way came across him and um, uh, there was an assault take place. He was assaulted and uh, he died there and then on the spot. Um, And uh, so, yeah, as I said, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Three weeks after I made that that comment to Mick, um, I was thrust straight back into that murder investigation. So what made you write a book about it? Well, Seven Bones um, became a bestseller uh, in Australia yeah. and the publishers said, look, um, is there something Any else? other stories? Yeah, that you can write <laughs> yeah. because it, it will just flow on from that. And I said, well, look, there was this other murder. It didn't get, wasn't a high profile one. It didn't get the notoriety of uh, the one in Seven Bones. I said, but um, it was came at a time where I was struggling personally with post-traumatic mm. stress. And I ended up getting back to the publishers after I thought about it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write this one, I want to incorporate what happened to me and bring PTSD out in the open. The first book was mm. a domestic violence um, murder. And that was the theme for that. This one, there had to be a reason for me to write it, not just write about this murder. Um, That wasn't good enough. So I thought, well, I'm going to open up about PTSD and what I went through. And with a bit of luck, this book might also help people who are going through their own struggles um, to realise that they need to get help. 
they've got to realise that they're not themselves, whether they realise it themselves or if someone comes and talks to them and says, look, you know, you okay and, and that sort of thing. But then they've got to make that conscious step to go and get help, go and speak to a professional. And it doesn't, I mean, if people are concerned about the police force situation and the police finding out about it, you can do what you did, which was go and see someone outside of the force and yeah. and get that help, yeah. Yeah, that's true. You, you can, like the police force now have their own uh, welfare yeah. people that you can go and see, or but you, by all means, can go and seek help from, from any source, outside the police or, or wherever. And um, I had that um, connection with Mark because having worked with him for 12 months, you know, years earlier, um, that I felt confident to talk to him. And I think that's the, the main thing. Go and talk to someone who you feel confident to open up to. It, it might be a friend. doesn't matter. Mm. As long as you open up to someone and kick that conversation off, um, and then it may be that you get help from a professional, like a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or counsellor after that. But you've, you've just got to make that first step. And that's I've spoken at different forums on um, for Are You OK Day and things like that. I'm, on PTSD, and I, I don't, con I don't mainly go down the line of watching for your your friends, and if they don't seem right, uh, go and say something to them. Yes, that's important, but I try and concentrate on the reverse and talk to about people that if you find you're struggling, don't wait for someone to come and speak to you because that doesn't always happen. Uh, mm -hmm. for a number of reasons go and get yourself um, some help go and make that first step and speak to someone no matter who it is go and speak to someone you mentioned you, you to open the conversation and to even go and speak to a friend but as someone that's not connected to the world of psychology if someone came to me and, and started opening up and talking about this sort of stuff, I wouldn't know what to do next. I wouldn't know how to help that person. I wouldn't know whether or not they would even want my help. Like I wouldn't know if I was overstepping. My natural inc inclination would be to sort of, you know, help find them help and sort of almost <laughs> railroad them into it depending on the conversation. But I know that doesn't always help. What would be your recommendation is if the if you are a friend hearing this and you're realizing that somebody that's um is struggling and needing assistance, what would you recommend that that friend does? Okay. Depending on how the conversation goes, um if during that uh, discussion with a person they they realize say, look, I need help to be honest, the probably one of the best ports of call would be their GP, someone that okay. they've been going to for a long time, that they trust, that they can talk uh, in a private setting. Um, a general practitioner, your own doctor, is is probably one of the, the best first starts you can um, choose. And then they then have the resources and the tools to refer you to um, a psychologist or whoever they think would um, be suitable for you. So um, I always say to people, look, a GP is a really great resource. 
And I think that's an easy one for the friend to be like, okay, who's your GP? I'll call them now and let's book you an appointment. You know, like that's an easy step to be done. Yeah, okay, that's a good that's good advice. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and it, look, it may not be that you need to do that because quite often all someone wants is a um, an ear, someone to hear them out and let, for them to offload to. And once that happens, it might be just a case of saying, "Look, um, I think you need to speak to someone who's um more geared up to help you than what I am. I'm happy to chat with you anytime you want. But if, to me, I'd, I'd then say, look, why don't you go and talk to your GP? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not so confronting because hopefully they've had this same GP for a long time or at least a period of time where they're comfortable to go and see them. And, um, yeah, I think that's a really good starting point and try and convince them or get them to make that step themselves to make their appointment. If they may say, look, um, can you do it for me? It might be a family member. Can you do it for me? By all means, let's do it and do it with them. Um, yeah, it just depends on how the conversation goes. You just sort of uh-huh. got to wing it and play it by ear. Okay. Anything you'd like to finish with? <laughs> no, I think we've pretty much covered all that. Um, yeah look both books are out there really uh, it was I sort of fell into them it wasn't something I ever planned to do um, but I can see the benefit now of having them um, written and published because of the I know they both help people I've had uh, old work colleagues from the police who have read Deadly Pass and have contacted me and said Mate, spot on. The way that was written, what we go through, what we deal with, um, spot on. Um, and so it's it's good to get those comments because you know that you've you've done something that can help people. Uh, and um, I know it, both books have. Is there a third in the works? Not at the moment, no. <laughs> no. Uh, um, the face then. <laughs> no. I look, don't believe that. No, put it that way. <laughs> no, there's, there's, I've got no, well, put it this way. They were the two murders that, uh, as I said, I was um, um, the, well, in Seven Bones, we had a team working on it. So I wasn't yeah. the lead detective in it. Deadly paths I was. I was the commander of the operation. Um, but, yeah, there's no others. And, look, I could write a book about policing and some of the funny things that have happened over the years, but, Would no, you go I into don't fiction? have the information to do it. Would you go into fiction, use your experiences as sort of inspiration and then go into fiction? Um, look, um, I don't think I... Look, I haven't got the writing skills to do it. As I said, I had to get Jason to come in and he would colour it that's up. That's okay. Like a, that's that's what they're there for. You could be, you know, a main character. You could get a whole series done. Yeah, I could do something like uh, something like the the ABC series Rake, uh, based on the barrister and the antics he got um, up to. Yes, I could do one of yes. As a, What's as the one cop, that Jack Carr's written? He's an ex Navy SEAL and he's just done that series that Netflix has taken up. Um, and it's got Chris Pratt in it. See, it, Hollywood's waiting for you, Peter. All you've got to do is write the books. <laughs> Look, to be honest, uh, a lot of a lot of police around my vintage 
they could all write books. So they'd all have stories to tell, uh, all of us. So look, we'll just say I don't have plans to write another one at the moment. Okay. Sorry, Big Sky Publishing, you missed out on that one. (laughs) (laughs) You'll probably have them uh, ringing me up tomorrow or sending me an email saying... Yeah, I will. Sharon will be right on the phone to you. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. No, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on your uh, podcast. Cheers. Thanks, Bianca. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 